Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for January 18th, 2022. I'm flying solo today. Rocky's had some family stuff come up. So uh, apologies to everybody that he won't be here to share his opinions. He's super disappointed. Um, I am as well. You know, it's always so much better. Don't even realize how much Rocky uh, and I play off each other until one of us is not here. And there's some super important books this week, like the first of Chip Zdarsky's Batman The Night, which shows kind of a Bruce Wayne origin story in a lot of ways. That's super important. Um, we have the uh, first issue of Tinny Howard's Catwoman, which is also super important. A really good issue of Wonder Woman. Uh, I'm sorry, Super Woman, uh, Super Girl Woman of Tomorrow, if I can get the title out. Uh, also, the Superman Son of Kal-El issue was really good. So, yeah, a lot of really great stuff. So, uh, super disappointed that he uh, couldn't be here. Be best issue of uh, Suicide Squad King Shark. So, uh, on the plus side, I guess it'll be a little bit of a shorter issue because it'll only be me giving my uh, opinions. And some of these books, I don't, I don't really have that much to say. Um, but real quick, before I dive in, there are 17 books. So, you know, it would have been a long one if Rocky was here. Uh, but I did also want to mention, don't forget about our Spawn Daily that's going on. Uh, unfortunately, Rocky hasn't been able to join those either, but uh, they're still coming out, still covering them uh, solo. And then also today, there is a creator-owned spotlight for a science fiction anthology on Zoop that's out called, oh my God, I told you, Thoughtscape. <laughs> I had the word tomorrow stuck in my head for some reason. Thoughtscape, that's what it's called. Uh, and uh, it's a second volume, but you can get the first volume in the uh, the campaign as well. So be sure and go and, and check that out. Uh, okay, let me go ahead and dive into the first book that uh, I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to share my screen here. Um, so as you can see, it's blue and gold, uh, running out of time. Now this is the, the Booster Gold Blue Beetle team up the stories by dan jurgens we have ryan sook on art steve buccioletto does the colors rob lee on letters uh real quick the art this isn't my favorite ryan sook art i'm used to um and i don't know if it's it's the color artist he's working with that he hasn't worked with before um or if he just was a little bit rushed it's just not as clean and as smooth as i usually expect uh ryan sook art to be but you will see that there's a really cool um alternate cover uh focusing on the peacemaker we know the peacemaker debuted on uh hbo max this week uh as far as the story itself it's a bit of a interesting it's non-linear which i'm not really that used to seeing dan jurgens do but uh like the cover indicates uh rip hunter shows up and you can see on that splash page there what i'm talking about with the um the art where it's just not quite as clean as uh as I'm used to seeing Ryan Sook, but we know that this Amazon woman came and attacked Booster and uh, and Blue Beetle and Blue Beetle's little robot sidekick, his version of Skeets teleported her into a swamp somewhere. So he thought, oh, everything's okay. So why is she, why is she back already? And that's what I'm talking about with the, um, with the nonlinear storytelling. So there's all these strange characters that are there. We've seen throughout that Dan Jurgens has used texting as a way to add context and humor to the story so all the got all these onlookers going on this omnizon woman keeps up with her her narrative that i'll talk about uh in a little bit keeps espousing the same old thing and, and beetle makes a few uh interesting 
uh, observations about that. So we do see as we uh, get through the battle here that we, we flash back to earlier in the day uh, and we learn that Trixie or uh, I think she's going by Terry now, actually, uh, even though it is, you know, the same same woman that showed up in, in the very first um, Blue Beetle or Booster Gold comic as Dan Jurgens created back in 1987. So fan favorite character in that way. But anyway, she's she's the one that offered the space for uh, Booster and Blue Beetle after Blue Beetle got kicked off the board of Ted Court Industries or Court Industries. So it doesn't have any money anymore. But now they've, you know, they've hung out their shingle. They're starting to get things going. That's why all these people are there. So we, we do get some context and they're all sort of crazy and they all have different ideas of, of what they want Booster and Blue Beetle to do. So we have that going on. And then the Omnizon woman is, is one of the people that's waiting there. And she starts talking about how, um, you know, Earth is under their jurisdiction. Everybody needs to bow down. And Blue Beetle's like, it's kind of interesting. You know, he's like, maybe we need to listen to her. Maybe we should try reasoning, reasoning with her. And Booster being Booster, you know, no, we'll never bend a knee and blah, blah, blah. But Blue Beetle has a point. Like, why don't we stop fighting and actually ask some questions and we might be better off. Like, if they're just going to rule us, but, you know, from afar, what difference does it really make? Um so eventually they start to lose the battle, but then Rip Hunter shows up. And again, we saw him mention that there was something going on that he needed to take part of in the first part of the issue. This is exactly what he's talking about. And then once this Omnison woman talks to Rip Hunter and he mentions how important these two are, she just decides, okay, well, why don't I just, if these two are that important, then let me just take him back to, to talk to the king, right? Her father. So that's what she does. She teleports him back. And again, Booster wants to fight. Blue Beetle wants to, he's not necessarily don't fight, but let's use our brains instead of our bronze since we don't really have much brawn. Plus let's find out what's going on. Maybe we can trick them. Um, and so they go in front of the King, Lord Keffin is his name. And they, they learn that uh, his ancestor claimed earth 70,000 years ago, which is before there were even any humans. And Blue Beetle's like, there couldn't have been anyone to agree to your terms because there were no humans there. And, and the guy's like, well, that's not really our problem. You know, like if we claim the world before humans evolved enough to understand, that's not our problem. We're just following our own laws and customs. Uh, and he's like, you're going to have to bend a knee. And again, Blue, Blue Beetle's ready to sort of let's reason this out. Let's talk about this. But Booster's like, nope, not going to do it. And so they're, they're found sort of in contempt of court, I guess you'd say, and their, their sentence is death by combat. And then, of course, Booster's like, okay, can I give a different answer? Well, by then it's too late, right? So next issue is the blood duel. Once again, as feels pretty typical with a blue beetle, Booster Gold team up, they're in over their heads. And um, I don't know, this one moves the story forward a little bit. It didn't have as, quite as much humor. Um, and yeah, the art wasn't just as sharp. So not my favorite issue of the series so far. I mean, it started out pretty good, but I don't know. It feels like it's, it feels like it's floundering a little bit. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I guess I was just hoping for a little, hoping for a little more. Plus the, the story doesn't just grab me, right? Like I get it. And it's in a way it's sort of, I don't want to say political, but, you know, Booster is keeps arguing with blue beetle saying we got to keep fighting we got to keep fighting and, and blue beetle's like you know what these 
people are claiming is is no different than when you, the Europeans came to America, right? Even though there were already people there. Oh, we claim this land. We for England, we were planting the flag. We're the first ones here. Well, no, what about those Native Americans? Ah, they don't count. You know, it, it's no different. And I think that's what Blue Beetle's trying to get across. Like these guys, they may not necessarily have bad intentions. They might not intend us harm. And who are we? Like we would be hypocritical to, you know, call them out when when our ancestors did the same thing. So, uh, yeah, in that way, a little bit political, I guess you'd say. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that's Blue Beetle uh, or Blue and Gold, Blue Beetle Booster Gold team up. Um, three issues left. Hoping it gets better. Again, it's not it's not terrible but it's just kind of average. Um, it started out really strong and I don't know, it just, it hasn't quite gotten there for me. Um, the last couple of issues have just been okay. So, uh, all right, up next we have Black Manta. So here's another one that we've been kind of struggling with. Um, and a lot of it again has to do with the art. Um, for the first time, with issue number five, which is, <laughs> which also you could think about as being problematic. Like, why did it take till issue five before I feel like I, I understand what's going on in the story? Like that, that shouldn't be a thing. I should, I should understand it sooner than that. Um, but anyway, it's by writer Chuck Brown, Valentin Delandro, who's been the main artist uh, most of the time is back as uh, handling the art. Marissa Louise does the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. So again, it, I, I did actually enjoy this one the most of, of any of the, of the issues so far. Um, and it does also explain why the, uh, the main villain, Devil Ray, looks so much like uh, Black Manta. We learned he actually was one of Devil Ray's men. Um, and his uh, his origin is tied in with having seen and been inspired by Black Manta, like way back in the day when Black Manta was fighting against um, Aquaman, and you know the, everybody was running and screaming and you know living in fear, running for their lives because this fight was going on. He was just mesmerized, and he saw himself in in Black Manta. You know, he's he's a, a young black child. And so that's what inspired him. He sharpened his mind. He honed his instincts. Uh, he, you know, he did whatever he could, entered that sort of criminal underworld and eventually was able to become one of the, the Manta men. And he, he believed in the mission and he, um, he was dedicated to it. He wore the uniform with, with honor. But over time, he saw that Black Manta stagnated in his mind, right? Black Manta got caught up in this blood food feud with Aquaman rather than wanting to, you know, in his mind, and this is the way Devil Ray puts it, free our people from the blatant systemic oppression of the power of Atlantis, right? He wanted, he wanted to be part of something bigger than himself. And instead, it ended up, he ended up being part of something smaller. He ended up being part of this revenge scheme where Black Manta would constantly fight against Aquaman and fail time and time and time again. And so eventually he was uh, on a mission and left for dead and uh, at the bottom of the ocean. And that's where he first came across this or a calcum stone. And because of his 
training and, and everything he'd done, he, um, he was able to, to manifest it. He was able to use it for his, uh, his purposes. And now he's out to basically pick up where Black Manta left off in terms of, uh, of running this revolution or inspiring this revolution or overthrowing Atlantis, however you want to put it. Right. So meanwhile, Black Manta and the, um, the other, I can't remember if we even got her name, um, but the, the other ancient woman that they fought that Black Manta and Gallus the goat fought last time. And then Gallus took him to their, their friend, her friend, the sorcerer, and he's managed to stabilize them again. They're both being affected by the oracalcum. And so they've gotten them back on their feet, but you know, what, what comes next, what's the plan. And when they're trying, as they're trying to figure that out, devil Ray finds them and shows up. Um, and he tells, uh, he tells black Manta hand over, uh, or he tells everybody else hand over black Manta and I'll let you live. And black Manta's like, what, what are you talking about? Let them live. And so it starts a fight and uh, devil Ray is actually able to get the other hand. Uh, and he tells him, he's like, look, Gallus isn't dead yet, but you know, I've, I've got her stabbed because he has a trident. Devil Ray has a trident that's uh, kind of uh, like electrically powered. It's not a full on trident, but it's more of a, uh, I don't think they show it in the previews. But anyway, he, he it's kind of a remote controlled um, electronic or, or energy trident. And he, he uses it to, um, to basically pin Gallus and say, okay, like stop, right? Like it's, it's hovering right above her heart. And he tells Black Mana, look, I haven't killed her yet, but it's still controlled this. It's on, you know, it's in her heart and I can kill her, but I haven't. Dr. Miss can try to remove it. That's what the guy's name is who was treating Black Manta and the other woman. Um, but, you know, I designed it, it's tamper proof. So like I said before, no one has to die. Black Manta just needs to come with me. And so Black Manta agrees, obviously thinking to himself, I got to go along with this, go along to get along. But what, as soon as he gets a chance, he's going to, to try to turn the tables, right? So once they leave, we find out what, uh, what Devil's Ray's plan was all along, which is he's forging a new trident from the Oracalcum Stone. And only somebody with Black Manta's bloodline can survive the uh, the process, right? Because we found out early on that Black Manta actually has some ties to ancient Atlantean royal bloodline. So the issue ends with them forging the new uh, trident and Black Manta going, okay, so what's your plan now? And Devil Ray spills the beans, you know, like every good Bond villain saying, uh, the plan is to go to war with Atlantis and Aquaman, uh, replaying my, uh, your classics. No, that's not what the plan is. The plan is to gas and kill all the Atlanteans and clear all the pests out from our ancestral, our ancestral home. And then I'm going to use the trident to raise Atlanta to the surface, Atlantis to the surface as his new king. So this Devil Ray guy, he's got, he's ambitious and he's capable. And it's been a long time since we've had a new Aquaman villain with this level of malevolence. What's interesting 
What's most interesting and what I really like about it is the fact that it's a villain of a villain, right? But it's not, this isn't a case where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Aquaman would be opposing him as well, whether that's the Arthur Curry version or Jackson Hyde or, or whatever. But this is also somebody that I think Black Manta would oppose. And we'll see, we'll see next issue because this is issue five of six. So there's one issue left. So to me, the first four issues, the story's kind of been all over the place with this one, with us finally learning the origin of Devil Ray and getting his motivations. This has really come together for me. Um, I, I won't say that I, I like the art. The art is still a problem for me. And I think um, a cleaner art style with this would, would make it more appealing. Um, because of the art style, it uses muted colors. I think that's a mistake as well, because I think this feels so interesting with so many different motivations for all the characters throughout that if you made if you colored it if, if you illustrated and colored it where it was like a classic superhero dc superhero feel i think this would be really popular but i just feel like the art's going to be off-putting for a lot of people because it's just not very clean it's kind of muddy um the transitions from panel to panel are real smooth so uh yeah i, I mean it, it is the prelude to aquaman this is interesting just like the Aquaman Becoming series has been very interesting, uh, which I'll talk about in, in a couple of issues, a couple more books down the line here. Um, so it's really setting up. I like what the what DC editorial and what the creators are setting up for the Aquaman corner of the DC universe going forward. I just wish it was, I wish they felt it was important enough or had enough eyes on it that they'd give it a little bit higher profile artist. So, uh, okay. Up next is the, Batman the Knight, which is the first issue of this um, Bruce Wayne origin story from Chip Zdarsky and, and the gang. Um, and it's basically, it's sort of like Batman Begins, right? Like it's, um, it's a lot of, okay, what did Bruce do after his parents were killed? And we, we've seen that a little bit here and there, like the Batman Begins movie touched on it a little bit. And there's been various stories over the years, but there haven't, there hasn't been like, okay, here's one story in canon that covers, you know, those years. And, and really it would have to be a whole series, um, which this is, and this is 10 issues. So it might be long enough that we get the majority of, of what Bruce has been up to, but it, probably not only because so many people have added different things over the years. It's one of those really easy areas to retcon things into like Ghostmaker, for example, uh, Raza Ghoul and all that sort of stuff. Um, but Sadarsky is really good at giving us uh, emotional stories. So uh, I don't really expect this to be any different. You can see the cover there as I shared my screen and uh, the story of Batman begins. So uh, there's an alternate cover by Greg Capullo, which is really cool. Not sure who does that alternate cover. Um, but here you can see the, uh, the credits. So we've got Chip Zdarsky as the writer, the art and the main cover by Carmen A. D. Jean Domenico, colors by Ivan Placencia, letters by Pat Brosso. Uh, I guess the one in 25 cover that I showed you, the third one there is by Gerald Peril. So it starts off when we get a little bit of background with um, Bruce talking to Alfred, and then he's an older version of Bruce here, still 
before his Batman training, and he's talking to Hugo Strange. Um, so this is an interesting little thing that um, that Zdarsky puts in here that Hugo Strange was a psychiatrist and he was um, talking to Bruce and trying to get at what what was angering Bruce back in the day with his parents and being murdered and whatnot. And there's some interesting early interactions with Alfred. I don't, I'm not a big fan of using Hugo strange in this way, like putting Hugo strange in here as a, just a kind of a con man psycho analyst who would hypnotize people and steal money from them, hypnotize young rich kids and whatnot and steal money. It, it's just not necessary. Just, just put in any old psychologist putting Hugo strange in here. Just, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't fit for me. I mean, I, I really dislike Hugo strange as a character. I think he's, he, you know, like I've said about the Joker a thousand times, Batman would defeat him in 30 seconds. I feel the same way about Hugo strange. He's just like, I really dislike him as a character. There's he, he feels reductive and, and not interesting to me. So, um, but anyway, this issue ends up being a lot of setup. Like we see Bruce as a young child uh, going to Gotham Academy, getting in fights. Uh, we see the disapproval of Alfred. We see a lot of setup in this issue that that basically leads Bruce to go on his quest around the world. We see him, you know, outsmart Hugo Strange. We see um, Bruce talking about his his dreams and what he might actually want to do. Uh, we see him trying to find an outlet for his anger and trying to do some training in and around Gotham and how that kind of backfires because of who he is and being such a known commodity. Um, and, and a lot of what we see is the disapproval of Alfred for the way that Bruce is, is living his life. So uh, ultimately as like Bruce being the son of Gotham and being in Gotham and being such a known quantity, I think it becomes clear by the end of the issue that he needs to, to go outside of Gotham for this training. And I imagine that's what's going to happen next. Um, so for the most part, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think that Zdarsky taps into the anger that Bruce is feeling at this point in his life really, really well. Uh, the interactions with Alfred are very, very good. If I had to nitpick it, it's just, yeah, Hugo Strange was unnecessary it should it should have just been random uh random psychiatrist random psychologist that was you know somehow doing something unscrupulous to make it hugo strange it just i, I didn't i didn't like that twist i don't don't put hugo strange in my mind you're elevating hugo strange you're making him more important than he actually is by having him part of bruce's origin story so so early on so again it's it's a minor nitpick for the most part, I really enjoyed this. I'm really looking forward to the next issue because, again, this was kind of setting the stage. Not that I think anybody really needed the stage set because we all sort of know what Bruce's origin, what Batman's origin is at this point. So you could have just started him overseas. Um, but there was a lot here to dig into to establish Bruce's mindset before he goes on that quest. Um, and especially with his interaction between himself and Alfred, who, you know, really is, is his father at this, at this point in Bruce's life. So, uh, okay. Up next is that Aquaman becoming series. Like I mentioned, um, that I was going to talk about soon and now's the time it's written by Brandon Thomas, a couple of pencilers on this particular issue. We have Paul Pelletier and Diego Orlatuga. 
Norm Ratman and Wade Von Grabager do the inks. Adriana, Adriana Lucas on the colors. And then Ann World Design does the letters. So a uh, really great job on the, the colors. This whole issue takes place underwater. So I got to give a shout out to Adriana Lucas, who uh, is a fantastic color artist. Uh, you guys have heard me sing his praises before. So he does a great job of, of making it feel sort of otherworldly uh, because we are, as I said, um, under the water. So this is the penultimate issue. It's also a prelude to that Aquaman storyline. Uh, really cool covers, a couple of them there. And um, I like this issue. It straightens out a lot of what we got fed last issue. Um, you know, we, we learned things about Jackson's mom and his sister. And last issue really sort of painted Jackson's mom as being this, this horrible person, Lucia or Lucia, however, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, L-U-C-I-A, um, about how she was part of the revolution in Zabel, but then took things too far. And it really, it painted a picture of, of uh, Jackson's mom as this angry part of the rebellion and, and really stood for a lot of the things that Jackson would be against. So it made it kind of hard for her to be a sympathetic character, even though that's how she started out in the series. Well, in this issue, we learned that what we were shown wasn't exactly true. Mika, this high up sort of politician in, in Zabel has, has manipulated the, the data and the video footage or whatever the equivalent of the video footage would be in Atlantis. And early on, we see uh, Mika and Lucia sort of have it out. Meanwhile, Jackson's talking to his sister, trying to get along. She's trying to convince him that to give his mom another chance, and maybe things aren't as bad as they, um, as you think. And she's trying to convince Jackson to stay there in Zabel and, and help them. It's a little bit of a interesting turn for Jackson's sister, just because Delilah had been so, such a militant, um, force early on in the book, like attacking Jackson on the surface world and whatnot. So it feels, it feels a little abrupt, um, but she does try to, to talk him into it. And while they're talking, there's a, there's an attack. So some guys have stolen some uh, Zabel military hardware. So Delilah and Jackson come to save the day. Um, meanwhile, Mika and, uh, and Lucia, you know, they were talking earlier and they're kind of at odds. And as the story progresses, it turns out that it's more than just political differences. Um, they actually sort of come to blows and Mika's forces end up uh, beating up Lucia pretty bad. Uh, she's able to escape and gets to, to Jackson and Delilah. Um, and they're trying to figure out what they need to do next. And uh, that's when Lucia is able to tell Jackson and Delilah, that, hey, Mika, uh, she lied to me. She uh, she lied to you, Delilah. She manipulated everything. Um, you know, the things that that the things that she showed you weren't true. Um, and Delilah, uh, Mika, I can't even keep the name straight. Lucia or Lucia actually has proof Um that's what she was doing when she got uh, captured and beat up by Mika's forces. She was acquiring a, like a equivalent of a thumb drive 
that has uh, proof that she's not uh, she's not responsible that she didn't do the things that um, that she said. So what's also on the drive is they find out that um, there's a, a peace conference that's set between um, Atlantis and Zabel, and Mika's forces have set a bunch of explosives to go to go off. In which case they're going to blame the rebellion that Lucia and Delilah have been a part of. And then that will be their excuse, Mika's excuse to exterminate them. And so that's uh, the cliffhanger that the story ends on. And Jackson's going to try to find a way to, to stop that from happening. So it's, it's turned into a very political book, which makes sense. You know, it's really a story about Zabel versus Atlantis and the prejudice and the politics that are, that are part of that story. So um, love what's happening there. Again, we're getting a lot of Aquaman stuff between Black Manta and Aquaman the Becoming. The only book Arthur's actually appearing in right now is the the Green Arrow Aquaman Deep Target, which he's not even Aquaman. He's, he's Green Arrow in that book. So it's weird that he's been taken off the table. Um, I sure hope that he's back and will be a part of the um, Aquaman story, but don't know at this point how he's going to how um arthur curry how aquaman's going to tie into that so i guess we'll have to uh we'll have to wait and see how that plays out so uh okay up next let me just uh get the preview up in front of me and next we have um batman versus big b which uh is written by bill willingham the creator of fables now, we've talked uh, about this book in the past and how you get so much more out of it if you have, if you've read Fables, if you're familiar with that world. Um, I am not familiar with that world. I have not read Fables, so um, I don't get as much out of it as, as Rocky does, but I still do find it enjoyable, and it is a very different version of Batman. Uh, in some ways, it's a more it's a more militant version of Batman, um, and he's got like an army of Robins, which is interesting. Um, you know, they train at like this academy under the the tutelage of Dick Grayson, so I thought that was interesting as well. Um, but yeah, I just I don't I wish. It's not that I have a huge desire to, to read fables because I don't really think it's for me necessarily, but I just wish I had a better knowledge of it because I know there are things in this story, which I, I do like this series, but I, I feel like there are things that are that I'm missing that are going over my head. But uh, in any event, it is written, as I said, by Bill Willingham. Brian Level does the uh, interior pencils, Jay Leistings on the inks, Lee Luffridge on colors, Steve Wands does the letters. So... We saw last issue that um, at the end of it, that Big B and Batman had confronted Bookworm. They had the uh, the ancient book that he was trying to steal. And Bookworm is a little more powerful than they expected. Um, and he actually kills Batman, which is really brutal. Um, like he just cuts loose on him and then uses a spell that he's been storing up for a, a very, very long time, very reluctantly, but it's the only way that he's able to defeat Bigby and take the book from him. So um, the rest of his uh, henchmen in tow, he sort of leaves Batman there just 
dead on the floor. Um, and, uh, and Big B being overcome by these tentacles. Uh, luckily, the Robins show up in time and they're performing CPR on Batman to keep him alive for an extended period of time. Um, and they managed to get him back to uh, back to Wayne Manor and and revive him. Um, and it, it's a neat scene. There's a lot of little Easter eggs here and there um, with different things that Willingham does with the Robins and equipment and whatnot. Um, so once Batman has recovered, he convinces Big B to sneak into the Batcave because remember the Batcave isn't even accessible from the house because Batman had previously in the series had uh, had captured Big B and had chained him up there and Big B broke out and went berserk inside the Batcave and destroyed a bunch of stuff. So for that reason, you can't even get into the Batcave from Wayne Manor right now. But now that Big B, Big B and Batman have teamed up, um, Bruce Wayne goes, he does kind of an end around from the Robins and from Alfred because there's no way, I mean, this guy was dead, right? They had to keep CPR going, life-saving measures on him for an extended period of time before they were able to revive him. The last thing that they would want is him back out on the streets going after Bookworm, but that's exactly what he wants to do. And he convinces um, Big B to, to go into the Batcave and get a bunch of stuff that he needs. So once they do that and they're able to team up and, uh, and he sneaks out, uh, they're, they put their heads together again. He is you know, the world's greatest detective to figure out where Big B is and, and what he's doing. So they have an idea of where he'll be and they're about to launch a sneak attack on Bookworm. But what we find out about Bookworm in this issue at the uh almost at the ninth hour here 11th hour i guess we'll say um because this this is book five and i think there's only six issues um so everything's going to come to a head next time but it's a little bit of uh of like harry potter right we find out that it's not actually bookworm who's been after this book and who has this uh, magical powers it turns out there's a there's another face under his hat and he talks about this, whoever this malevolent being is, he talks about sort of hitchhiking and riding along on uh, Bookworm's body, like how he, because one of his henchwomen says, well, are you sure you want to perform this ritual uh, to, you know, gain the, the power of this spell book? Because it, it's likely going to kill, in your present condition, it's likely going to kill this body you're in. And he goes, well, I, I don't care if this body dies it's a borrowed ugly thing anyway let bookworm die but this this ritual i'm going to perform is going to be essential for me it's going to reinvigorate me so bring me the book so i can begin and he removes bookworm's hat and there's a there's a face on top of his head his face has a face uh it's a really cool looking visual so uh i imagine batman and big b are about to crash the party crash in on whatever this ritual is. So we'll see how that all plays out. Definitely playing up the magical aspect of a book like fables, um, which again, this is the, obviously the, the tie-in, if you will, um, because even though the world they're in is not the fables world, because Big B and others and whoever this guy is and, uh, and whatnot, there's been a lot of talk throughout the series of how they, they traveled to this other world 
And so it's clearly they're not in the fables world, but they're also not in, you know, the regular DC universe either, obviously. Um, I mean, it's a black label book. So uh, it, like I said, it is a different, it is a different version of Batman and, and he's much more, he's got an edge to him. That's not there uh, in, in, you know, <laughs> which is saying something, right. Cause Batman certainly has an edge to him in the regular DCU as well. Uh, but he has an even harder edge. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's as hard as he is like in the Garth Ennis uh, reptilian Batman reptilian series that we got from Garth and Liam Sharp. Uh, he's not quite that dark, but you know, he's a little more practical, but he's definitely more of a take no prisoners uh, the way that, uh, that Willingham writes them. So uh, if you're into that sort of thing, you'll probably really enjoy it. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Catwoman. As I mentioned uh, at the top of the episode, this is the first issue of Tinny Howard's run. Uh, Nico Leone does the art, Jordi Belair on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, the art is really slick. Uh, we get uh, a couple of covers, including a, a Jenny Frisson um, alternate cover, which is really fantastic. Um, but the art, it's really slick and it, it's almost. And maybe it's the colors by Jordi Belair, and I, I won't necessarily hold her hold that against her. But you can see even on the first page, just that dichotomy of colors. You know, Catwoman sticks to the shadows, so you expect a lot of darks, uh, dark colors like dark greens and grays and blacks and whatnot. Um, but I do like the feel, like the slick feel that we get with some of these bright pinks and purples as well. Like they're in a nightclub, so it, that sort of makes sense and we're setting a tone and I think all of that really works, but you can see uh, if you're checking it on YouTube, you can see, you know, these pick, this, this double page spread in this nightclub where even in silhouette, it's pink and white, which I think works really, really well. And then you flip the cover or flip the page and we're back to uh, the title page with Catwoman and where she's hanging out rooftops, whatnot. It's a lot of blacks and grays and blues. So I, I like that dichotomy of color that uh that jordy blair provides one of the things i don't like the however is is the narrative i think that tinny howard there's uh, there's potential here but like i think the last thing that gotham city needs is more crime families there's more than enough crime families already um and she just creates four more like why not go back and use families that are already there so it's a little, it feels a little clumsy. And I, I also think the scripting, at times I, I'm reading this and I'm going, everybody's being so clever. It's like they're trying to say something without saying anything. Like you can be, there can be too much of a good thing. Like it's so vague and so obtuse at times. I, I'm like, I don't. I don't even understand what the person's saying. Like who talks like that? You know, like it would be a problem if it went the other way. And the, the dialogue was like, you know, 1930s gangster, like I'm, I'm going to get Jews and that sort of thing. But it, it, it tries to be too smart. I think Tinny Howard is trying a little too hard. I think she needs to simplify a little bit because 
I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty sophisticated DC Comics reader, and even I was sort of lost. Now, it might be that as things go along, it becomes more clear what's going on. I, you know, I don't mind her foreshadowing things or don't give me all the answers right at once, you know, like pace it out. And, and there's plenty of the seeds planted for that as well. But I shouldn't, I shouldn't struggle when I'm just reading dialogue, when people are talking to each other and, and they're like trying to say things without saying things. It's sometimes you just, if you don't want somebody to know something, you just keep your mouth shut, you know, instead of, it just feels like these characters are trying to out, out talk each other, outwit each other with words. And I didn't, I didn't care for that aspect of the story. Um, but we are introduced to a new character who is sort of a spokesperson for a very loose confederation of international thieves that makes contact with Catwoman. Um, and there's another character. I'm not going to spoil it for you. There's another character that shows up that has ties to Batman and Catwoman. And I sort of knew he was going to show up and he, and he's another one where he's saying one thing, but his actions are another. And the way the other criminals interact with them, it just, it all felt very phony and coincidental and convenient. I mean, one of the things I like about Batman rogues uh, or Batman villains is they, they pretty much know where they stand with each other and they don't, they don't try to beat around the bush or, or um, imply things. They just come out and say it, right? Like, you know where you stand with the Joker. You know where you stand with the Penguin and the Riddler and whatnot. So I don't know. I felt like this was maybe trying to be a little too clever. So, and, and you know, not that I don't want Tinny Howard to tell the story that she wants to tell. And I'm a fan of Tinny. I, a lot of the stuff that she's done previously, I've enjoyed, especially her work over in the X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe. Um, it, this is so radically different than what Ram V was doing. And again, I don't expect her to be like, oh, try to be like Ram V. No, write your own story, tell your own story. But it's just that that Ram V run on Catwoman was maybe my favorite Catwoman run ever um, with the most authentic and realistic and relatable voice in my mind that Selena ever had. So to go from that to this, it's, it's a, it's very jarring. It's very jarring. So maybe I just need a, an adjustment period and I'll be able to be on board with this. Um, so I, I, I don't know, jury's still out. I'm not going to say that I didn't like it. Um, Cause again, I, I think a lot of the seeds that were planted here are, are really interesting. And the, the issue is narrated by Selena. And when Selena's just, just talking to us or talking to herself, or we're just reading her thoughts, that's not part of that obtuse language that I was having a hard time following. That's when I say scripting, that's the dialogue, like the dialogue in the issue. A lot of times when characters are talking to each other, that's where I felt sort of lost. Like, what do you, what do you mean? What are you saying? Are you, are you purposely being vague and, and it, you know, it, even better than vague, just obtuse. Like, if you know what that word means, it's like talking in circles. Like you're a lot of words are coming out of your mouth, but you're not actually saying anything. Like it's all nonsense. It's all gobbledygook. And that's great if, if that's the way you guys want to talk to each other because nobody wants to be up front. But I don't know. Again, maybe it's just a personal thing. Like 
I've said before, I think I've mentioned on this podcast, where stories where things happen because people just don't share information, that bugs the crap out of me, right? Like if something happens where there's some catastrophic disaster, something goes catastrophically wrong because person A didn't share information with person B, even though they're like husband and wife or brother and sister or something, have some close relationship. It, it bugs their best friends. It bugs me so much. Like, okay, so this whole, this whole conflict could have been avoided if you guys were, had just communicated, you know, just cause I'm, I'm that way, you know, I'm straight up front with people. And I, I tell people like if my coworker needs to know something, I tell them, I don't keep it from them try to make them look bad or anything like that. Like that kind of stuff just really bothers me. It's so, it's so unnecessary. Um, it's like an episode of three's company or something. <laughs> I don't like it. So anyway, what I do like is when we, when we get the voice of Selena, right? Like when she's narrating it for us, uh, I think Tinny does, a, does a good job there. So there's a lot of good bones here. Um, hopefully she just finds her footing. And, and again, maybe it's me. Maybe I'll go back and I only got a chance to read it once. Maybe if I go back and read it, the dialogue between characters will make more sense to me. Or maybe when I know a little bit more what this is foreshadowing, because again, it's, it's not a hundred percent linear story either, which always adds in some aspects, which can be confusing. So, um, but I did enjoy the art, really enjoyed the colors, um, but yeah, very, very jarring transition, which again, not Tinny's fault, not Ramby's fault, not anyone's fault. Just going from one writer to the other. So we'll see. We'll see how it all plays out. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Green Lantern. This is from writer Jeffrey Thorne. Uh, Chris Cross, Juan Castro, and Marco Santucci are listed as the artists. Michael Itea does the colors, Rob Leon letters. I gotta be honest i the the artists that are listed inside are not the same artists that are list, listed on the cover because it sure the heck looked to me like some of this art was by tom rainey um which you see he's uh listed on the cover but when i looked inside um i didn't see i didn't see his name i didn't see tom rainey's name so um this is the first issue where we don't really get um like two separate narratives right we we saw john stewart go up against a light bringer last time and this starts off and he's like this god um and he he's in this sort of strange parallel universe and it's tying in with future state and he, Again, feels a little bit like fan fiction. We know what a huge John Stewart fan Jeremy Thorne is, and you know, between the God Storm and and turning John Stewart into this god, like he's able to at one point he resurrects Katmatui, like his wife, like, and then we find out he tells through her that that's kind of the tool. She's kind of the expositional tool. She's our POV character. So John explains, oh, I've got all this power now, and. I'm able to, I've resurrected over 300 lanterns. Like really? John Stewart is, is God. He's able to resurrect, he's able to bring people back from the dead. Th that shouldn't be a thing. That shouldn't be a thing. It's not interesting. I, I just, I don't know where the heck uh, Jeffrey Thorne is trying to go with this. And meanwhile, we see the guardians who we thought were all dead are actually not dead back on Oa. And 
the United Planets security force is joined by those guardians to go up against Koyos, who has all this power from the power battery. We found out that he was the one that was responsible for the power battery blowing up. So he is uh, trying to rule the universe. Basically, he, he wants to destroy Green Lanterns. He's, he says that, um, you know, Green Lanterns are the problem. He needs to rule so he can employ order and the Guardians need to go away. And um, nobody really has any power, but yet, uh, except for the one ring that um, that Joe Mullen has, because it was created in a different way than the rest of the rings, but yet with no power and all this catastrophe that has befallen Oa, somehow all of the other Green Lanterns were able to build this really powerful armor that they're using to fight, up, fight against Koyos, along with the United Planets forces. But all that being said, they're still getting their butts kicked because Koyos has, you know, all the power that was in the the battery. So you got to take everything with a grain of salt. Like, how, how the heck were they able to build these Iron Man suits, even if they're not that formidable and Koyos is able to take them out pretty quickly? Like, they're re- trying to rebuild Oa. They had all kinds of people that were injured, that needed medical attention, Everything was in ruins, and yet they're all able to build this armor that can fly and attack Koyos. Um, but then, like I said, but it doesn't matter because Koyos still kicks all their butts. And then at the end, um, the Justice League shows up, or Calvary uh, shows up. Hal Jordan, um, Naomi, Flash, Hippolyta, and Martian Manhunter show up to help uh, along with that that United Planets peacekeeping force. So uh, it, it's a big mess. You know, it started off, I wasn't a big fan. It got better. I started enjoying it. And now it's back off the rails again with this John Stewart feel of fan fiction. Like John Stewart as a god, John Stewart raising the dead. Nope. I, I, no, I don't understand why it doesn't make any sense. This, it's just, this Lonar character hasn't been explained. Like, I don't know. I'm lost. I'm I'm lost in a way. I feel like it hasn't been. Not only has the reasoning not been explained for why you would do this to John Stewart or why John Stewart is making the choices he would make, because that that would give context to the story. But it, even what's going on within the story itself, like even if I bought into it, even if I was the world's biggest, well, I couldn't be the world's biggest John Stewart fan. That's Jeffrey Thorne, but I could be the world's second biggest uh, John Stewart fan and love this. Because, yeah, John Stewart deserves, he's such a great character, he deserves to be as powerful as a god. I still wouldn't understand what's going on. It's not explained. Like, Lonar's motivations not explained. Why John Stewart was able to get all this power from the light bringers not explained. Where John Stewart has gone is not explained. What this alternate world that's filled with all kinds of colors is, is not explained. So, I don't know. The, the structure of the story itself isn't good in my mind. Um, the John Stewart part. I will give Jeffrey Thorne a lot of credit for what's been happening on Oa, other than a little nitpick about the armor. The 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 Owen storyline, the Joe Mullen storyline has been very good. I've been very interested in that. Um, not a, not that I'm a big fan of Teen, Teen Lantern and establishing that relationship between her and Simon Boz felt very forced, but that could have been something, you know, editorially dictated or, you know, it's not his choice to have Teen Lantern in the book or whatnot. 
Um, but I, but I get it. Uh, but for the most part, the Owen storyline has been very, very good. And I wish that's all the book was, uh, because the John Stewart storyline, like I said, it just has such a fan fiction feel. Um, so I, I don't know. I hope it comes to an end soon. I mean, we're 10 issues in and we haven't, he's been telling two storylines simultaneously. So maybe that's why maybe, you know, you figure one storyline takes six issues, but if you're dividing the book up, it's going to take 12. I hope so. I can't take much more of this John Stewart storyline. I mean, even the cover says the ascension of John Stewart, like he's become a God and that's not, again, I'm not the biggest John Stewart fan, but he's no God. And John Stewart would probably be the first one to tell you that. Like he has no business being a God, having the power of a God. It's not, it's not interesting. And when you think about it in a lot of ways, by raising John Stewart's power level that much, Jeffrey Stewart as a huge fan of Jeff, Jeffrey Stewart, Jeffrey Thorne as a huge fan of John Stewart is actually being reductive to the character because you're going to make him so powerful that then what, what can he do? Right. Like it's the same argument that people have with Superman. Oh, Superman's boring, especially back in the day, uh, pre-crisis Superman's boring because how can you challenge him? How can you create conflict? Nobody's a match for Superman. The guy can move planets. He can move stars. He can move solar systems. He can do anything. He's Superman. Like, how do you write an interesting story? It becomes boring because no one can stand up to him. So Jeffrey Thorne being this huge fan of Jon Stewart and by elevating him so much, he, he it's again, it could be seen as reductive because you're making him so powerful that, okay, now nothing can stand up against Jon Stewart. So what story is there left to tell with him? So I don't know. It's, it's problematic. It, not, not a fan, not a fan of the Green Lantern book at all right now. Um, okay. On to a book that I am a big fan of. Uh, it's Nightwing. We're up to issue number 88. Uh, this is from writer Tom Taylor. Bruno Redondo is the artist, Adriana Lucas on colors and role design on letters. There's not a whole heck of a lot that happens in this issue, but we do get a new costume for Nightwing and he's actually wearing it there on the cover. Uh, and there's an alternate cover by Jamal Campbell, which is very, very beautiful. And I'm sure uh, will please fans of uh, Nightwing Oracle ship because they're definitely uh, in, in each other's arms there, warm embrace. And then the last cover, which I think is fantastic. It's my favorite. And it's this uh, character design sheet variant where you get some notes from Bruno Redondo here about the way various parts of the costume work. So really, really cool. It's great to get uh, Tom Taylor back on the book. I mean, look at that page there. Just beautiful, beautiful uh, skyline with Dick talking about what the city of Bloodhaven can be and how he's dedicated himself. We, we know in previous issues, he established the Alfred Pennyworth Foundation with all the money Alfred left him. And meanwhile, blockbuster Roland Desmond is trying to take him out. Not Nightwing, because he's not aware that Dick Grayson is Nightwing. He wants to take out Dick Grayson because Dick Grayson is the one that's the threat, right? That's establishing his foundation and undermining giving money by giving money to the poor and raising people up 
it doesn't allow Blockbuster to keep everybody under his thumb. So unbeknownst to Dick Grayson, because Dick is not about to, you know, kowtow to the pressure. We know we saw last issue, the, uh, the running uh, long panel issue by Bruno Verdano, that there's a hit out on Dick Grayson and Oracle's kind of urging him to, to be careful, go into hiding. It's like, no, he's not going to do that. But he's also not going to go out as, as Nightwing. He's going to go out as Dick Grayson and do what he needs to do. But unbeknownst to him, uh, Oracle has reached out to some of his uh, some of his former teammates to keep an eye out. And sure enough, when Dick Grayson goes to the groundbreaking for the, this new Alfred Pennyworth uh, like community center, um, where they're going to build on the site of where it was like a homeless encampment, they're going to build a bunch of affordable housing there or homeless shelter type place, and uh, Blockbuster has hired a couple of people to to take Dick Grayson out, but when the shot is fired, the flash is there, and he's able to uh, get Dick Grayson out of the way while the Titans take on these uh, these assassins. Um, and for the most part, the art is pretty cool. The only thing I didn't care for is I don't really like the way uh, Bruno Redondo draws Star Starfire, particularly her hair. It's very angular which uh, in my mind, it should flow. I mean, I guess I'm always a fan of the George Perez, the way it becomes the like trail of her, you know, flight power or what have you. But anyway, uh, the Titans come in, they save the day, Flash runs uh, Dick over to Mr. Terrific. That's where he gets the new costume. And then they head back over and take out all these guys that were, uh, trying to assassinate Dick, and then they go and confront Blockbuster. And they're like, we can't prove anything. We know you covered your tracks, but be advised that from this moment on, Dick Grayson is under uh, Titan's protection. So Gun Bunny and Gun Hawk were the two assassins that, uh, that Blockbuster had hired. Gun Bunny gets captured by the Titans. Gun Hawk gets taken out by somebody else. That guy that was stealing hearts? Yeah. For some reason, he wants uh, he wants Gunhawk's heart. So he gets the information that it was Blockbuster that hired him. They were hired to take out Dick Grayson, and we see him take uh, Gunhawk's heart. So he's still on. The, I don't know if we've gotten a name for him yet. Um, the Heart Stealer, something. I don't know. Uh, but he, yeah, he's still on uh, on the playing field, and there's still a price out on. Dick Grayson's head. Now, whether Black Blockbuster is going to back off or just hire even more powerful people to take Dick Grayson on, I, I would imagine he'll choose the latter and choose to hire more powerful people to take Dick Grayson out than just some hired guns, basically. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so I, I do feel like, and I talked about this before, like, you know, we were interrupted with what, um, with what Tom Taylor was trying to do with the with the fear state story and then we came back from that and we got what bruno redondo was doing with the uh, issue that was all one panel uh and while you know i won't say it was a gimmick or that it wasn't cool because it it certainly was and it did tell the story although it didn't advance the story a lot this one we started we're starting to advance the story a little bit but it still doesn't feel like we're back to pre-future state levels in terms of 
how much story we're getting. And because when you think about it, not that much happened in this issue. Dick Grayson refused to, you know, give into the blockbuster intimidation, got rescued by the Titans when blockbuster tried to kill him, got a new costume, warned, they warned, the Titans warned blockbuster and the heart killer showed up. I don't know. Maybe that's enough. Um, but I, I just feel like in some other, in, in some pre, some pre fear state nightwing issues felt like more happened than that. And certainly more has been happening per issue in uh, Superman, son of Kal-El, which is also by Tom Taylor. Now I know they're, they're different books and different art style and whatnot. Um, but I don't know. It, I just feel like this book hasn't quite been firing on all cylinders since we've returned um, from Fear State. So just, it's still a really great book. It's still one of my favorites, gorgeous art. Um, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm waiting for something big. I mean, we got hints of um, Dick Grayson's long lost sister. And is she really your sister or not? Like a lot of stuff happened early on. Um, a lot of intriguing things and, and, we haven't had any, any revelations or anything like that happen in a while. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have a Robin's number three being Robin. This is uh, Tim Seeley as the writer, Baldivar Rivas as the artist from Fajardo Jr. Does the color Steve Wands on letters. The art is okay. I'm not a big fan of it. It's not super detailed. It's sort of an anime style. As far as the story goes, my favorite issue so far, um, we got some kind of some explanation for what's been going on. We get uh, a scene at the end with the original Robin and learn that she's the one that's been behind a, a lot of what's been going on. You can see uh, one of the covers there, three of six. Again, all the various Robins there and very much Joker-like which it seems like that original Robin, you know, she has a little bit of the Joker aesthetic to her. So um, that's kind of interesting. So we know that the, um, the various Robins have been fighting like the, the junior injustice league or whatever they call themselves. Uh, the, the villainous sidekicks who we learn are using something. Uh, what's it called? They're using this, um, this interesting substance. Uh, and it was, I thought it was mentioned in another um, in another book this week, but I can't remember now. Uh, Triplex, Triplux, it's called. An adaptive holographic construction material called Triplux. Hard light Halloween costumes, basically. So these junior villains are masquerading and disguising themselves as their um, their uh, their mentors, basically. So Penguin. Catwoman, Poison Ivy, Joker. Two of them actually are Joker. Um, and they fight the Robins and uh, they've got three criminals held hostage and they, they claim they want to take them out for you know various perceived slights and whatnot. So when they actually get a chance to take the upper hand against these villains, uh, what's interesting is Tim Drake decides that he doesn't want to help save them. Cause they take all these guys out and they find out that these other villains are, or these other criminals are being held hostage. And these other criminals 
they were all a part of the various gauntlets that the Robins had to go to as kind of their final test to become Robin, their final test from Batman. And so Tim Drake's like, no, I'm not going to help you. Not only am I not going to help you save these people, including the people who gassed my mother and father, which killed my mother and and crippled my father, made him, uh, you know, a, a paraplegic. I'm going to fight anybody who tries to save them. And after he says this, um, Jason Todd just knocks him out, like one punches him. Um, and then obviously they go and save the, the guys that are held hostage there. Um, so what's interesting is we find out, again, super spoilery here, we find out that it was it's actually that original Robin in disguise as Tim Drake. Tim Drake's been captured. And it seems like it was all set there to to sow confusion and discord and distrust among the Robins and, and among the Robins and Batman. Because when Nightwing goes and reports to Batman about everything that went happened and Bruce is just like, okay. And he's like, okay. Anything like Bruce is okay. Noted anything else. He's like, Nightwing's like, wait, what do you mean? Anything else? Are, are you listening to me, Bruce? This isn't some case that we just solved. Like your Robins are, are hurt. Like we're hurting. Like, do you know why we were together in the first place? We were trying to decide if it was a good thing that any of us became Robin. Like if it was, uh, you know, a net good, and you know, what we decided it wasn't, it wasn't. And he walks away and, and Bruce is really, you know, really upset or whatnot. So uh, this is definitely a story that is, um, examining the trauma of what it means to be a Robin. And it's, it's interesting enough. Uh, and I will obviously finish reading it, but, you know, I hate to sound like a, uh, I'm beating a dead horse here, but so many of the other round robins uh, stories sounded like they would have been more interesting, um, which is, we have so much Batman, so much Batman, but this is, this is interesting. There's, there's some psychological aspects to it that, uh, that make it interesting. So, Best issue of the the series so far. That's what I can say about that. Okay. Um, up next, we have Detective Comics. We're up to issue 1049. And if it feels like we're covering Detective Comics or we're talking about Detective Comics a lot, we are. <laughs> it's coming out weekly right now for this Tower storyline covering the goings-on within... Uh, within Arkham Tower, which, again, I don't understand why Gotham City would, you know, you finally got rid of Arkham Asylum with A-Day. And, you know, whether, obviously, A-Day, not really a good thing. A lot of innocent people died. Some not-so-innocent people died. Whether you think that's justified or not, it's a conversation for another day. But you, you got rid of it. Like, it was gone. And you rebuild a mental health institution for Gotham, which Gotham needs. Okay, perfectly fine with that. You build it in the middle of the city and you call it Arkham Tower. <laughs> no, no, you don't. But of course, this is Gotham and this is comics. So yeah, I guess you do. So anyway, we're up to part three. It's written by Marika, Mariko Tamaki. Uh, Ivan Harris does the pencils. Danny Mickey on inks. Brad Anderson on colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Um Main cover is by 
Irvin Rodriguez, Lee Bermejo, and Jorge Fornes have some uh, variant covers for us. So let me go ahead and share what those look like. There's the main cover. Again, Rocky and I talked about this last time, how it's very photorealistic. I guess that's supposed to be the Huntress there. And then we've got the Bermejo cover, which is, you know, he's one of my favorite artists. It's always the one that I ordered. And then there's the Jorge Fornes cover. So um, we, we saw last time we got the origin of Dr. Ware in this one we're getting uh, a little bit more of, of who Anna Volshin is. Um, and she's, uh, she's talking about a dream that she has. She's having a, a session with Dr. Chase Meridian. And we still don't have all the information about who she is, but she's obviously very important to the story. Um, and we learn a little bit more about what is going on within the tower itself in terms of the crimes that are going on. We know we learned last issue that uh, Batwoman Kate Kane has gone undercover as Dr. Frau uh, and she's trying to figure out what is going on. We also see in this issue that um, that Huntress is there as well. She's there and she's undercover, but these chemicals, whatever they are, there's a, there's a certain smell going around that's, that's suspicious, I'll say. And late at night when Batwoman confronts uh, or goes to talk to Huntress, Huntress seems sort of out of it. So clearly there's something going on with the drugs. We also learn that the, the party crashers have infiltrated. They're working there as kind of some orderlies and whatnot and smuggling the drugs out that way. There's still a lot of questions that we don't have answers to, but things are starting to come together, starting to make sense. And doctor, it's clear that Dr. Ware is a really, really bad guy. So um, I think there's a lot more to anavulsion than meets the eye. Um, so I'm sure that we'll learn more about her as it all plays out. I mean, when you look back at the dreams that she's having, like, what does this picture mean? Um, what is, what do these bodies in the basement mean? Like all of that is still to be, uh, explored. So I guess we'll have to, to wait and see how that all plays out. This definitely feels like a slow burn in terms of what's going on, especially future state, how fast paced the future state detective comics tie-in was, but it makes sense because this is coming out weekly. So there's a lot more space for, um, for Mariko Tamaki to work. I also hope, but don't expect that we'll have Yvonne Reese on all of this. Like, I don't know how long he's been working on it, but we're three issues in and he, we've gotten art from him for every issue so far. So I really, really, uh, love that because his art is so detailed and so nuanced and just so beautiful. The color work in the book is beautiful. Like, like this is awesome. This is such a fantastic book. And I will point out that throughout there's no Batman, right? We know Batman. Uh, if you've been reading the Batman title, you know, he's, he's overseas. He's, he's out of Gotham. He's, he's not in this story and you don't miss him. Like you don't miss him at all. Uh, this is just so compelling. And uh, again, paced a little bit slower, but just fantastic. Gorgeous art. Um, it might be, might be my favorite DC book right now. 
Like that's how much uh, Mariko Tamaki has elevated this book for this tower storyline. So absolutely fantastic. Just, just loving it. As far as the backup goes, uh, Fernando Blanco does the art. It's very, uh, it's not quite as clean like as his Catwoman work, but it's very, um, what is the word? I guess moody. It suits the tone of the story very, very well. Matthew Rosenberg uh, is the writer. We have Jordi Belair on colors and Rob Lee on letters. Uh, We learn that Jonathan Crane, the scarecrow, is working at this Bruce Wayne home for boys. Um, The young boy that Bruce Wayne put there is being bullied because he he was, you know, personally put there by Bruce Wayne. So the other kids kind of pick on him and make fun of him out of um, a little little aspect of, of jealousy, I guess you would say. Oh man, so something's in my eye. Sorry, um, but we still don't know who that kid is. Um, but we see him interact with uh, with Jonathan Crane, and it, it's clear that there's something significant about this boy. So, who he will end up be being in the end, we don't yet know. But uh, I am enjoying the story, and as Rocky and I uh, discussed last time, one of the best things about the backup is the fact that it it ties in really well with what's going on in the main story. And that is, has not been the case for, um, for almost all of the backups in DC books. Like you get the backups, but they don't have anything to do with what's going on in, in the main story. But this one feels like it does like whether this kid could be, you know, related to Dr. Ware at some point or whether he's Nero whether he's someone else and evolution related to anavulsion, we don't know, but it, it definitely feels significant. So, uh, okay. Up next, we're on to milestone. It's icon and rocket season one, number five. I think there's one issue left. It's written by Reginald Hudland, Leon and Leon chills pencils by Doug Braithwaite inks by Andrew Curry colors by Brad Anderson and letters by and world design. Uh, I've talked before about this being my favorite of the um, of the three milestone returns books that hasn't changed. I feel like it's the most emotional and yet it's the biggest in scope. And, and by emotional, I mean, these characters are so relatable and Hudlin's done a great job of making them relatable and making us care about them and, and making it feel their relationship feel intimate. And like, we're a part of that relationship but yet the idea of this ancient alien that's been around and how he and uh, his sidekick rocket are trying to change the world, you know, for lack of a better term, um, the scope of it is fantastic. We also, as you can see the main cover there, if you're checking it out on YouTube, we also get a little cameo from Virgil Hawkins. Uh, and there's a little bit of a lightning heart, um, around the, the two of them as Hawkins tries to uh, make a move as, uh, as they say on a, uh, on rocket. I thought that was pr- pretty funny scene. Uh, and then there's the Doug Braithwaite cover there. So uh, again, really fantastic work by, uh, by everybody involved. Um, Icon confronts one of the women who works in the justice department. He's trying to get information on the other alien, the bug as they call them who's been searching for them. And we do also find out that this bug was the one that, uh, that took out um, the ship that 
icon was on way back in the day and killed all his uh all his brethren uh from the same species he was on and the woman doesn't want to help but eventually icon's able to to threaten her enough to get her uh to give him some information so he's hoping that he can find who this bug is uh or where this bug is and and take him out um once and for all so uh meanwhile rocket's got to go back to school you know she's kind of been doing her rocket thing for for quite a while and hasn't been able to to go to school and she's not real happy about having to go back to school and what icon is going to do is he's going to go meet with um the woman that helped save um raquel and her mom rocket and her mom um back in the day and it's it, it, it's funny because rocket calls it a date um and he's like well you're gonna go and i can't remember what that girl's name is uh let me see if i can find it really quickly um Zeomara, that's who it is like he says yeah i have a meeting with Zeomara today hopefully she has some tips on the the bugs whereabouts um rocket's like oh it sounds like a date and he's like uh no it's definitely not a date but when he gets there he he does sort of act like it's a date we still don't know about Zeomara. we don't know a lot about her in terms of her uh, background or origin but we do know she's part of this this group of uh powerful and capable women and she, her ulterior motive for meeting with Icon is that she wants to recruit Rocket to that organization. It's called the Love Corps, a global organization of women out to change the world for the better using our own brand of love, which really means kicking ass. Um, so a lot of powerful women. Uh, so I definitely uh, appreciate that. So, um, like I said, for for uh, Raquel's part, she's got to she's got to go back to school. She's not real happy about it, but she does it because she doesn't really have <laughs> much of a choice. Uh, but when she's at school, uh, one of her teachers is talking about how Icon and Rocket have done so much good because they have they've been going after all these drugs and and. Uh, And Raquel disagrees. She stands up and, and because again, that, this was her idea, right? She's the one that convinced Icon to go after the drugs, but she knows there's consequences and things that she didn't think of. And she stands up and says, um, I don't, I don't know that everything that you're saying tells this teacher straight up. Um, everything is not better off. You know, Icon and Rocket did the best to get rid of the drugs, but in the reality, that's not possible because the, the desire for the drug is still there. So by reducing the supply, all you've done is, is create more violence because the prices are sky high. So there's people out there who want the drugs who can't get them and they're they're trying other they're sniffing glue, they're smoking bananas. Um, and there's people that are you know losing their jobs or they're quitting their jobs because the only way they were able to cope with their jobs was by being high. Um, and now like businesses are failing because of unemployment, uh, or, or lack of labor. And, you know, this isn't exactly what I would call a utopia. And there's pushback from other students in the, in the, uh, in the classrooms, like, Hey, my dad was on drugs and now he got clean. He's trying to get the family back together. So I'm thankful. So, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. These are complex problems. 
But the teacher calls Raquel out. Well, like, okay, how do you know all this stuff? You you need to tell us your sources. And Raquel obviously can't tell her sources because her sources is her and Icon and what they've discovered. Um, so that causes some friction. Um, and then her her old boyfriend is, is trying to get back with her. We saw the first issue. He was the one that was using her to help commit crimes. Meanwhile, Virgil, like I mentioned, Virgil Hawkins static is trying to make his move and they're being typical teenage boys and she's kind of stuck in the middle and this other guy shows up and like, hey, I just transferred here, hoping you could show me around. And they walk away and this new kid's basically saying, you look like you need some help. So, you know, I made an excuse for you to get out of there and she goes, oh, oh, thanks. Um, What's strange is how quickly she trusts this guy. And they end up leaving together. He's like, yeah, my parents are rich and they are renting this house like on the lake and you want to go check it out for the day. I'll have you back, you know, before dark and what have you. And she stupidly goes like, you know, there's a people out to get you. Like, why would you trust this guy you've never seen before? And sure enough, when she gets up there, um, this guy starts shape changing and it's the bug. That's the, the guy Icon has been searching for and rockets up there um helpless because the guy even managed to sneak her bag away from her that she had her belt in so i'm sure rock i'm sure uh, icon's going to show up to save the day but man i guess chalk it up to the naivete of youth to make this dumb uh decision like that but yeah it, i could see it coming a mile away and why she trusted that guy i don't know but that being said uh it doesn't make me dislike the issue anymore it's still my uh or any less, I should say, it doesn't make me like the issue any less. It's still my favorite of the milestone um, series, and yeah, I'll just chalk it up to uh, to a youthful mistake on Rocket's part. So, uh, love the nuance, love the scope of the story that um, that Reginald Hudlin and Leon Chills are telling. Uh, I certainly think the art by Doug Braithwaite is absolutely fantastic. So, uh, it, I can't really find much much fault in it you know like even a little nitpicky thing of like her going off with this guy i mean it could it could be purposeful right like that's that's reginald hunlin showing that hey she's only been a hero for you know a couple of issues here um but i also like the social aspects of it you know where it's not like they're dealt with in very realistic ways you know it's not like they decided, okay, we're going to get rid of all the drugs. And okay, drug problem solved. No, Hudland and Chills are handling it in a very realistic way, saying it's not enough to just, just get rid of the drugs. Like you solve one problem, that doesn't make the world a utopia. Like other problems remain. So fantastic. Really, really fantastic. Uh, okay, up next, we have Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. Up to issue seven, I think there's one issue left. Uh, we saw last issue that Supergirl was able to capture Krim of the Hills, but they're being chased by the uh, the other bandits, the other space pirates or what have you, um, are still chasing them. So Wonder Woman stashes Krim of the Hills, uh, ties him to a palm tree, <laughs> equivalent of a palm tree on this alien planet, leaves... Um, uh, Ruthie and uh, and Comet, I couldn't, couldn't think of the super horse's name, <laughs> leaves Ruthie and Comet there to, to guard him. And really, Comet is there to make sure Ruthie <laughs> doesn't kill Krem of the Yellow Hills like she uh, had promised to do while 
uh, Wonder Woman goes and and takes out these brigands, these space pirates that uh, that Krim had ally, uh, allied himself with. So while she's out in space fighting these, um, Ruthie is is trying to extract information from uh, from Krim, like trying to find out why he did what he did. So we get a little bit of information about that, about the interaction between Krim and her uh, her father and whatnot it, it doesn't uh it doesn't make ruthie want to kill him any less but meanwhile supergirl's just battling thousands of uh of these brigands and she's doing a pretty good job of holding her own until they they pull out a little bit of kryptonite which is really really expensive but um you know they have just enough to take her out and as she's kneeling there, it's a great scene as she's kneeling there and the, the pirate's like, do you have anything to say for yourself? And she says, uh, no, you can't. Please just don't. And the pirates are like, wait, what? We've never heard of the mighty Supergirl begging. And again, it's a fantastic scene. Um, but what, what we learn is that it's not Super, Supergirl's not talking to these pirates. She's talking to Comet. Because Comet is aware that Supergirl's become overwhelmed and is about to be shot with a kryptonite bullet. And Supergirl's saying, no, I'll be fine. Stay there with, with, uh, with Ruthie. She, Supergirl is so concerned with what Ruthie will do if left alone with Creme of the Yellow Hills that she doesn't want Comet to come and save her. But meanwhile, Ruthie is aware of what's going on. She realizes that Comet needs to go help Supergirl. So she makes a promise. She makes a promise to Comet. Hey, go and save her. Um, I promise I won't, you know, I won't touch him. Uh, swear on my daddy's grave. I won't violate your trust. And so Comet takes off feeling safe. And then the issue ends with Ruthie saying something like, haven't you ever lied to a horse before? So Ruthie wants her revenge. And Ruthie is not Supergirl. We know Supergirl values life too much to kill, but Ruthie is not Supergirl. We know that Supergirl's been dealing with her trauma, and that's a lot of what the series has been about. Um, and it's been, it's been very, uh, it's been very interesting to kind of compare and contrast Supergirl and and Ruthie, and how much Supergirl you know sees of herself in, in Ruthie. But again it's clear that Supergirl and Ruthie, you know, they're not, they're not the same. So I, I, I just, I find that contrast very, uh, very interesting. You can see on the screen, if you're checking us out on YouTube, uh, there's a Nicholas Scott variant cover, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, just amazing. There's the regular cover. And then, yeah, that Nicholas Scott covers is really cool. So showing you a little bit of the art here and they're on the planet uh, and there's the, the brigand space craft and there's Ruthie and Comet talking. There's Krim tied up. So the art throughout has been excellent from Bilquis Evely and, and Matt Lopez. And that, that reminds me, I didn't get the credits, right? Tom King's the writer. Bilquis Evely does the art. Mateus Lopez on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. So the, the emotion it feels like it's building up to something in this penultimate issue. Um, and yeah, it's entirely possible that Supergirl's going to come down to the planet and find that Krem has been killed. And I can't say I wouldn't have done the same in Ruthie's shoes, but it's that contrast between Supergirl and Ruthie that 
and the relationship that that really is at the core of this book and what makes it work so well. Um, and really, I would say that this issue is really a Ruthie issue. Like we maybe haven't gotten a, an issue that's been this focused on Ruthie. I mean, Ruthie's narrated the story throughout, but with this one, we see that she's still the same girl that we met in that first issue. Who's just hell bent on getting what she considers justice for her father and despite all the lessons and um, all the trials and tribulations that she's been through, along with Supergirl, Supergirl seeing herself in Ruthie, she still is the same at that at that core. Uh, that what is inside her is still the same in her core, and so much like Supergirl is the same. Supergirl values life so much, um, and Ruthie, she's just from a she just has a different set of values. So going to be interesting to see if what Supergirl has done and the experiences that Ruthie has had with Supergirl, what Supergirl has done sort of training her and giving her experiences and taking her along, if the lessons Supergirl's tried to impart are actually going to stay Ruthie's hand in the end, or if Ruthie will give in to her, I won't necessarily call them baser desires, but um, give in to her, her quest for, for vengeance or her thirst for uh, for justice for her father. Um, cause again, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily blame her, you know? Um, and creme of the yellow Hills is, is certainly no, no saint, you know? And, and like I said, she, Ruthie talks to him and she, she gets some insight, some context into why the guy killed her father. And it, it, when he explains it to her, it, it sort of makes it even worse that he did. So he was he was out there looking for traitors by and the reason the way he would do that is he would tell a kind of an off-color joke about the like the king. And if somebody laughed at it or went along with it or responded with a joke of their own, he knew they weren't loyal to the king. Her father went the other way and was like ready to report Krem and insulted Krem. And Krem's like, all right, you're dead. I'm like, wait, no, he, this guy was completely loyal. So it makes it even worse the way that he was he was killed. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Next book I'm going to talk about is Nubia and the Amazons. We're up to issue number four of six. It's from writers Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala. Stephanie Williams handles the scripting. Aletha Martinez and Daryl Banks on pencils. Mark Morales, Daryl Banks, and Aletha Martinez on inks. Romulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors. Daryl Banks and Hi-Fi on the colors. So much like a lot of the minis that have been going on, um, Aquaman Becoming, uh, not Supergirl, because that one's been really well done the whole time, but Aquaman Becoming, Black Manta for sure, um, this Nubia and the Amazons. As we're getting close to the end of the series, they're starting to make even more sense as we get more and more context for what's going on in the story. So we know Medusa has escaped and uh, we see that uh, Nubia is starting to make some decisions about what needs to be done to, um, to stop Medusa. Um, and she, she, she blames it on herself. She, she takes it all on herself, much like a queen uh, will do. And rather than, put anyone else at risk. She decides that she's the one that's going to travel through doom's doorway. And she's actually going to give Medusa what she wants. She's going to give Medusa back her, her head 
um, and and tr try to figure out what it is that Medusa needs. She needs to Nubia needs to free Andromeda, and let's let's talk, right? Like in the middle of the story, we get a little context about how Medusa has um, like maybe everything with Medusa has been taken out of context a little bit. Um, so we get a little bit of a, a flashback. And this issue is a lot of talking heads. I, I will say that. Um, but Aletha Martinez art and Daryl Banks art do a good job of, of keeping it interesting, moving the camera around and whatnot. But we do get a flashback that gives some context about why Nubia made the decision she made when she was visiting quote unquote man's world um, and some, some fights and some people that she protected there. And it kind of reminds her of, of what her job is uh, as a queen and as a protector. Um, but in the middle of the story, we, we also get some context from Medusa that, hey, you know, it was a goddess's jealousy that cursed Medusa. So maybe let's try a little bit of a reasoning. Maybe let's give Medusa the benefit of the doubt. So how that's going to lead into the trial of Amazons. Will Nubia end up being removed as queen to go back to being the protector of death's uh, or Doom's doorway, rather? All of that is still up in the air. All of that is still to be decided. So it's a bit of a setup issue from Williams and Ayala, but at the same time, we get a lot of really pertinent information as they're moving the characters around and, and putting them where they need to be. And it's not like all these Amazons get along or have the same um, perspectives on things. Um, so I, I like that dynamic again. Like I was saying earlier, if, um, or actually, I guess I was talking about that in the, in one of the recent spawn daily spawn episodes, when I was talking about, uh, politics in your comics, um, I don't know, it all, it all runs together, but anyway, um, this is a very political comic in, in terms of, there's a lot of strong personalities here. There's a lot of strong women and different ideas and they, uh, Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala do a really good job of making these characters unique and and giving us that political tension, these different ideas, these different opinions, and the friction that it that it creates. So uh, this is a, a very very underrated book, and I can only wish that. And again, nothing against Joel Jones, but I think a lot of the problems with the Wonder Girl book had. Uh, the Yara Floor book had to do with delays and whatnot, but I also think it wasn't the cleanest narrative. Um, whereas Williams and Ayala clearly had a plan here, and, and this Nubia book has just done, been done so well. Like they're, those books are just night and day in terms of quality. It's it's kind of frustrating we didn't get more from uh, from Yara Floor. Um, so yeah, two issues left of Nubia and the Amazons, and yeah, this one's fantastic, great art. Uh, okay. Up next, we have another Wonder Woman book, and I do find it, I don't want to say annoying, but like all three of the Wonder Woman books come out on the same week. Um, you would think that you would want to spread it out so you could get the Wonder Woman fans into the comic shops on more than just one day. So we have the regular Wonder Woman book, we have Wonder Woman Evolution, and we have Nubia and the Amazons, and they, they all come out the same week, every week, which I, I just find to be strange. Like... I mean, I guess last last week was all Batman, right? Why could why can't this week be uh, be all Wonder Woman? 
All right, sorry, I had to have a sip of water. A lot of talking. Uh, okay, so this one's written by Stephanie Phillips. Mike Hawthorne is the penciler. Adriano Di Benedetto does the inks. And Jordi Belair on colors with Tom Napolitano on letters. Now, one thing that I'll say about this uh, Wonder Woman Evolution book throughout it throughout its uh, its entire run here, which we're only on issue three of eight, it's been a very fast-paced book. It makes for a really quick read, um, which is is interesting to me because you this idea of Wonder Woman being the champion or or the lawyer or whatever you want to call it for this um, this trial that humanity is on. Um, and then Rocky and I have talked in the past about like why choose somebody who's not even a human uh, and that's addressed here. Um, but for a concept that is, you know, it's not wholly original, but for it's a, it's a big concept. You would think that it would be a lot of talking and uh, reasoning and, and whatnot, but instead it's been like a lot of action and really big panels from Mike Hawthorne. So if you're a fan of the Mike Hawthorne art, this is really a book for you because it showcases his art really, really well. Uh, we also get a really cool uh, variant cover from Juliet N uh, Nika that you can see on the screen right there. Uh, and then as far as the story goes, we've seen throughout that these uh, these beings, whoever they are that are putting um, Wonder Woman on trial, they have the ability to like create these memories or these illusions or I don't know, their version of the holodeck, I guess, to... Uh, to illustrate their point. And so they're showing images of Wonder Woman in World War II, Nuremberg. And, you know, she's asking, why are you, why are you showing me this? You know, the ally, this isn't, this isn't something that's bad because the, you know, the beans are saying Nuremberg was a center for German national socialism. And look at, you know, you guys have this world, but you're destroying it. And all you do is fight against each other. And Wonder Woman saying it's the opposite. Um, you know, we, we fought and, and this is, you know, where we, uh, where we held the trials and to make people accountable for, you know, what they needed to do and whatnot. And so, um, basically the beans say, well, yeah, this is why we chose you. This is because you understand the history you've been around for so long. Um, but we just don't feel that like the reason we're putting humans on trial is because that you've been around for so long and they've learned so much. Um, but instead of getting better at survival, they're getting better at death. Right. And, and not only are humans getting better at killing each other, they're killing the planet as well. Right. Global temperatures are rising and species are going extinct. And so, I mean, they make a lot of good points here and Stephanie Phillips is certainly tapping into a lot of the you know the things that are wrong with the world these days so uh again it's it's a bit of a fast read it, it's sort of uh, a topical book and a relevant book um and why they chose wonder woman uh is because they, they feel that she's the perfect candidate to explore the worthiness of of people um they don't really give Wonder Woman a, a choice, right? Because Wonder Woman says, well, what if I choose not to participate? And I said, well, then we'll rule against humans. Um, but they really think that Wonder Woman is, is the, the ch should be the champion because 
Wonder Woman knows she's been alive long enough and she's been through all this stuff and the war and whatnot that she she knows that what these beings feel like Wonder Woman should know the nature of humans and Wonder Woman still chooses to protect humans. And so, you know, that's why. And it does make sense when you think about it in that context of why they would choose Wonder Woman. So, uh, again, it's an interesting story. It hasn't been fleshed out that much yet exactly what uh, Wonder Woman's role will be now that she's accepted her role as champion. Um, but I feel like this, the big strength of this book is the Mike Hawthorne art. Like, don't get me wrong, Stephanie Phillips is doing a great job of pacing it out really well to let Mike Hawthorne's art shine, but uh, he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of, of giving us wonderfully emotional panels and uh, the flashback panels of the, the, uh, the action in World War II were fantastic. So still not 100% sure uh, how this one's going to turn out, which I really like. Because so often, three issues in, I'm like, okay, well, they're going to do this, this, and this. Man, I have no idea. I have no idea what Stephanie Phillips is going to do. So I love that aspect of it, and I'm loving the Mike Hawthorne art. So uh, if you're a Wonder Woman fan, probably would encourage you to pick that up. I'm, I'm certainly enjoying that more than the regular Wonder Woman title right now. Um, do I enjoy it more than Nubia and the Queen of the Amazons? Mm such a different book you know that nubia book is, is so political in nature and that uh that wonder woman evolution is like just a big action movie so they're both great uh okay up next we have superman son of kal-el number seven let me get the uh cover up for you guys so you can check it out uh so tom taylor is the scripter Pencils are by Cian Tormi, inks by Cian Tormi and Raul Fernandez. Colors are by Hi-Fi. And letters are by Dave Sharp. Main cover by John Timms. Variant cover is by Inhuk Lee. You can see it there with, uh, with John and Aquaman. Um, a lot of, lot of stuff goes down in this one. So it's not told linearly. We, we have this giant creature that's um, attacking Metropolis. And we did see in the last issue that um, Bendix, uh, his, his plans, Henry Bendix, the, 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 I was going to say ruler. I mean, technically he is the ruler of Gamora's title is president. Um, but he, uh, he started what he called the rising. We know that Gamora's, what Gamora exports and what they work on is, is creating super beings. And so uh, we flash back to a few days ago. And uh, let me finish that other thought first. <laughs> uh, so yeah, at the, at the end of the previous issue, we saw it was the rising and, and Bendix was activating all these, all these heroes. And, and this is why. So we also see... Um, the truth, the headquarters of the truth, which is the uh, organization that Jay Nakamura is a part of, the, the love interest for John Kent. And uh, we learned about them. And as John Kent is out there meeting all these people, there is a uh, event that goes down uh, or, or starts to happen. And Bendix reaches out to Lex Luthor and says, hey, uh, there's a Leviathan moving toward the city. Please don't do anything about it. Um, 
I'm going to send my my super beings out there. So Bendix is trying to get good PR uh, and send his super beings out there to to stop this Leviathan. So Superboy or Superman, I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, he, he saves some people on the outskirts of a metropolis or near the water from sort of the tidal wave that this creature is, uh, has created. Uh, and Jackson Hyde is there as well. And what happens is that while Jackson tries to pacify the creature, Superman flies off to figure out what happened. And again, a little bit of uh, politics here. Um, has to do with global warming and messing with the oceans. And there's a part of the ocean that's been deoxygenated where this creature lives. So that's what woke it up. Um, and when Superman flies back to Jackson and tells that to Jackson, Jackson's like, I'm not surprised it's happening in more and more places. So the, all this creature is really looking for is, is what was harming it. Right. It's, it's not, it's not this like, highly advanced thinking creature it acts on instinct and feel mostly but they're in the midst of calming it down and superboy creates a wall of ice in front of it and they're they're gently steering it away from uh metropolis when here come bendix's dumbass gamora core and just start attacking the thing right just you know typical meathead attitude and uh, because of that, the creature, you know, lashes out and it actually kills one of the guys. Um, and that's exactly what Bendis want or Bendix wants, right? Like they even says like, Hey, that guy's in danger. Should we have him move out of the way? And Bendix is like, no, keep him. We need to keep him in place. Let it happen. So he, he wants that to happen. He wants a super man to look bad. You know, like, oh, he couldn't save this guy when he could have, like they were steering the monster away from Metropolis. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on in this issue. There's a lot of, you know, relevance for uh, global warming and climate change and all that kind of stuff that that John, as a, a member of the generation that he's a member of, is very concerned about, which ties into the real world very, very well, because, you know, kids in the real world around John's age are, are really concerned about that sort of stuff. So it's very topical, but it's also continuing the, continuing the narrative that Tom Taylor has been uh, giving us throughout, which is a lot to do with, uh, with how different a Superman John Kent will be. Um, we also did get a little bit of, um, let's say evolution. What's the right forward momentum? I guess we'll say with the uh, Jay Nakamura John Kent relationship. When Jay's talking to John, saying, you know, he doesn't say join up with um, with the truth, but he's he talks about identity and being a part of something and feeling like he belongs. And there's also a little bit of talk about. He feels guilty for abandoning his mother because he thought she was dead. So there's a little bit of forward, moment, forward momentum with that relationship, but it gets interrupted by the action, which I think is an interesting way for Tom Taylor to just uh, structure the story. So um, one of the better issues of, of Superman, Son of Kal-El so far, um, I, I'm still, I still continue to think of John Kent as Superboy, as you can tell when I was talking about the book, but uh, John Tim's art, I think, is he, John Tim's is doing a great job. 
you know, when we talked about the John Tim's art um, in the future state Superman book, we, we talked about just how busy it was. It wasn't, on, it wasn't working for me on a lot of levels, but uh, I think Tim's has gotten a lot better with kind of settling it down. Uh, there's still plenty of detail, still plenty of emotion. Um, and it's got a youthful feel. The colors are very bright, which also helps with that youthful feel uh, for the story. So yeah, the art is, is definitely top notch in that book. And uh, I don't know, I'm jury's still out on it overall. I mean, obviously we're not putting the genie back in the bottle at this point. John's not getting DH'd as much as a lot of us would like him to be. But he's not Superman. He's still not Superman to me. I, I really wish that his dad would come back and he'd go back to being called Superboy or just give him a different name. Um, Cause I, I get it. Like he can't be Superboy forever. Right. I mean, I don't know what we can compare him to like Robin, maybe like Dick Grayson, Robin, you know, he couldn't be Robin forever. Um, I don't know. He's in a unique situation, which again, I think part of why it was such a mistake to age him up because he's not Superman but you can't leave him Superboy forever, but you could have left them Superboy for much longer if you'd kept him at that younger age. So uh, anyway, uh, let's move on. Next up is uh, Suicide Squad King Shark number, what are we on? Number five of six. So this is another one of those books, like I was saying that uh, are getting close to the end and all of a sudden they're with, with context, they're making uh, a lot more sense. So um yeah, this is my favorite issue of this far and away. Uh, it's written by Tim Seeley. Scott Collins is the artist. Wes Abbott and Anvil Design do the letters. John Kalis on colors. Um, and we we learn a lot about not only King Shark, but about his, his relationships, I guess. Um, and there, there's plenty of humor as there's been, uh, there's been throughout. But I don't know the, the, you know, Sean has, has not been the best of friends to King shark, but that he doesn't, he hasn't realized that throughout, but she comes flat out and tells him that here, you know, she's like, um, I only got this close to you so I could learn your weaknesses and then report them to like the, you know, the human avatar guy, right? The, my whole time, the whole time I've been here, I've been trying to, to sabotage so that you'll lose the wild games. And King Shark's like, well, why would you do that? He goes, isn't it obvious? Because I'm a human. I'm not a shark. Like I want the, the humans to, to win. And King Shark, he, 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 even he doesn't quite get it, right? Because she's done such a good job of being a friend to him and He's like, well, am I going to look up in the arena and see you there? He's like, no, um, you're not. Like, I'm, no. So go ahead, get mad, go crazy. We're not friends. Scream at me. I'm ready. And King Shark is like, he just he walks off, right? He he he's hurt. He's hurt. Um, and of course, Vic is is happy that that did that because she thinks that he thinks that she probably threw King shark off his game. So it, it again, political, interesting, this whole 
tournament that's been going on. Um, but then in the end, what, uh, what Sean realizes is that despite what she said to him, that she actually does care about King Shark um, because King Shark has never asked for anything from her. King Shark has, uh, has accepted her for who she is always. And meanwhile, this Vic guy has been trying to change her. And when she realizes that, it's like a light bulb moment for her. And so she actually shows up to the fight and, and tells that to King Shark, which then kind of inspires him to, uh, to win the battle. But just as he's about to, to win the battle, Vic removes the blindfold that he's been wearing the entire time. And we see that he's infected with like nematodes, apparently. And he wasn't actually fighting for the humans after all. He goes, I, uh, you know, I, I kind of expected you to betray me, um, Sean, like a long time ago. Um, but actually I turned my back on the Lord of all humans a long time ago. And I partnered up with somebody else and we get this crazy image drawn by Scott Collins of, of Vic with like these worms coming out of his eyes and like this nasty, I don't know what bubbling out of his nose. And yeah, it's, it's really, really gross. So a very heartfelt issue, um, with, uh, early on in the beginning of the issue king shark trying to talk to his dad who we saw was killed last issue there's plenty of potty humor as well when um gentleman ghost goes to talk to amanda waller we find out that his essence has been trapped in a a commode on the island where they're holding the wild games so he's literally getting peed and pooped on which i think is hilarious um so yeah best issue of the the series so far as uh, it's very emotional um, and it highlights the the friendship between Sean and King shark really, really well, which has been kind of the emotional touch point of this entire series. Um, And again, I I think it's, it's worked well and there's, there's enough humor in here, but you know, I mentioned the, the body humor Um, there's some humor with lady Orca and whatnot. So yeah, this, it really feels like a lot of what's been going on that I don't want to say hasn't made sense, but a lot of different threads have been, been playing out emotional threads and it, it, it all comes together in this issue. So um, I think it's a, a good job by, uh, by, uh, by Tim Seeley. Uh, okay. Let me. Uh, let me move on to, I guess, the last book I'm going to talk about today, which is uh, Wonder Woman 783. So, uh, like I said, this is unfortunately the least favorite of the Wonder Woman titles that are coming out right now. Um, and it, it just feels like these guys don't really have the best handle on what's going on. Um, just again, no direction. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Um, Marcio Takara is the artist. Tamara Bonvillain does the colors. Pat Broso on letters. 
uh, Terry Dodson and Rachel Dodson do the main cover that you can see there and uh, the variant cover. So it's loading, very, very beautiful variant cover by Will Murray. And then uh, we get to the, the main part of the story. We know there's all these reflections of, of Wonder Woman um, and she's, she's taken them out. She goes back and meets, we, we know the image makers behind it, who the image maker is, we don't really know. Wonder Woman makes it back to Metropolis, uh, ends up meeting up with Etta Candy and Steve Trevor. And uh, we see that Dr. Psycho has sent some new version of the uh, Shining Knight, not Sir Justin, to fight uh, as well. Um, but we don't know who it is. But Wonder Woman manages uh, to take him at, or manages to turn him to her side. Um, but whether or not that means that he'll be on her side for the long run, we don't know. Um, meanwhile, um, back on uh, Paradise Island uh, in Themyscira, we see that Hippolyta, which Apparently, this takes place after the events of Nubia and the Amazons number five. So I guess Hippolyta comes back as the queen is what you're telling us. You've sort of spoiled the ending. Uh, but anyway, um, Queen Hippolyta has been trying to contact Diana. And when she tries to contact, she actually gets one of the uh, mirror images that then comes through the portal and she ends up having to, to smash it. So uh, now I guess they've been drawn into the conflict. But who this image maker is, why? There's all these mirror images of Wonder Woman. We don't know. And this issue is just a lot of action. Again, we have that scene early on with Dr. Psycho creating a new Shining Knight. We have no context for that. We know it's not Sir Justin. Battles Wonder Woman at first and then says, oh, there's all these mirror images of Wonder Woman to battle. I'll, I'll battle those as well. Um, so it makes sense that they that they would team up, that Wonder Woman in this new version of Sir um, Sir Justin would team up, but we, again, we, we just don't have any context. And then it's just the battle over the, the skies of DC um, with dead man who they don't seem to write very well. Like I thought dead man, like nobody could see him if he wasn't in another body. Cause as far as I know, he's not in a body. And I also thought he couldn't interact with the corporal world. If he uh, wasn't solid, if he wasn't in somebody's body, but he does fine here. It's just, I, I don't know. It, it didn't seem like they used him correctly. Um, but then the issue ends. Like we get that scene with Hippolyta at the end, trying to contact Diana and that's it. It's over. So a lot of action in this issue, but not much forward momentum, not anything explained. Still don't know who this image maker guy is. So yeah, there's, it, it just feels a little bit sloppy. It feels a little bit sloppy. Um, the backup story is is much better um it's the road to trial of the amazons written by vita ayala skylar patridge is the artist removal for jr on colors becca carry on letters um we get a lot more of the uh, the context for the bana migdal tribe and we're understanding how they're tying into the trial of the amazons a lot going on with Yara Floor in terms of the context for that and Artemis. Um, we sort of get the, the perspective and the the feelings of the, the tribe and why they want to 
be welcomed back to be part of the Amazons, why there might be animosity. Again, it's very political. I expect this trial of the Amazons uh, event to be very political. And if you want to know what the trial of Amazons is going to be about, uh, I think it spells it out right here, right? Like there's a lot of talk in this issue about Nubia being queen and having to abandon uh, her duty to guard Death's doorway and there needs to be a new champion. And the way the Banna Migdal tribe can be welcomed back is if there's going to be a trial, uh, you know, a trial by combat or whatever it is, you know, kind of like the same sort of trial that Diana took place in to become Wonder Woman, then somebody, namely Artemis from the Banna Migdal tribe should compete and win. And if she then becomes the guardian of Doom's doorway, all the rest of the tribe will be welcomed back to Themyscira as well. Because one thing I did not know about the Banna Migdal tribe is they're not immortal because they're not on Paradise Island. They're not immortal. So they love, would love to get that immortality back and be welcomed, welcome back, be welcomed back to the island. And so, again, a lot of context. It's making me excited for Trial of the Amazons. I do wish that the main story was a little more focused because it feels a little bit haphazard, a little clumsy. Also, the Marcio Takara art feels very rushed to me. It's very sloppy. It's, I've seen his art look so much better. Usually, he's got tight lines. Um, also, the colors are very muted, so it's not servicing the story very, very well. I feel like with really tight art, with kind of bright colors to give it that real super heroic feel, um, it wouldn't feel quite so, uh, so clumsy. Um, I won't go so far as to say it feels amateurish, but um, it doesn't feel as as tight or as polished as it could. Um, and that's both a function of the narrative and the art. So uh, it's unfortunate because I, I think when we had the, um, was it Travis Moore, I think was the artist when it first started. And, and Rocky and I raved about that first issue. It was so good with that tight art. Um yeah, so if you brought him back on, I think I would be enjoying a little more. Maybe he's drawing tri uh, Trial of the Amazons. I don't know. So anyway, uh, that's the last of the uh, the DC books. No, there was a ton of them. Uh, tried to keep it short, but uh, and I know I didn't get to share the images, you know, as well as Rocky does it. We hope to have him back soon. Uh, we really do. So best to his family. Uh, the only book that we didn't talk about in detail is there is. Uh, a Looney Tunes issue that comes out this week from DC. Um, let me see if I can find it for you really quick. Um, for all you Looney Tunes fans out there, it's number 264. So that's out uh, this week from DC as well. And then uh, as far as uh, trade paperbacks, we have the Crime Syndicate trade paperback, which we really enjoy that story from... Uh, so Andy Smith, I think, was the writer on that. Yeah, Andy Schmidt, sorry. My apologies, Andy. Uh, we ha even had him on to talk about it. So that was a lot of fun. And then uh, I guess that's it. I, I do see on this site that I use, it has the Mr. Miracle Great Escape uh, Young Adult Trade paperback listed, but I think that one got delayed. That one got pushed back. So I think that's not out till next week. So anyway, that's going to do it, everybody. Don't forget to check out our Spawn Daily episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to the Comic Boom YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Subscribe to Rocky's channel. 
Uh, make sure you ring the notification bell so you know when new content comes out and like this video. If you're checking us out on YouTube all the time and you've never gone over and subscribed to the Comic Source, really help us out if you can do that. Um, Five-star reviews on um, iTunes really help out as well. So the, what you need to do to subscribe, just go to your favorite podcasting app that you use on your smart device or your favorite platform, whether it's Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, whatever it is, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe and you get those uh, episodes sent right to you every day. So uh, we really appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.